Welcome to the Reform Rookie Podcast. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so? Worthy vicar, do we find anything here of relics? By faith man lives and is made righteous, not by what he does for himself. Be it adoration of relics, singing of masses, pilgrimages to Rome, purchase of pardon for his sins, but by faith in what God has done for him already through his son. Dr. Martin, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith, if you sweep away all good works, all these glorious things you dismiss as mere crutches, what will you put in their place? Christ. Man only needs Jesus Christ. So this is our third session in Leviticus. Uh, the first one we had the introduction, and it was that was um, the main drive there. The second time we got together, we finished the introduction and we got into the first chapter, and we discussed uh, some of the spiritual reasons behind uh, the sacrifice uh, of the burnt offering and what it was a picture of. And, and so we talked about some of those things. I, I just want to cover it again very briefly. And then move on to some of the practical things that uh, Gary North brings up in his commentary. And so I'm going to try to follow along with his uh, his outline just to touch on some of those things. Again, he goes you know very in depth, and I'm trying to distill it down to what we need. But one of the things I wanted to talk about from last time was we had a question as we read through Leviticus one, and we're not going to do it again this time. But uh, if you have your your Bibles uh, open, uh, I do want to point to one of the first couple of verses and, and something it had said. And remember that, you know, well, let's see. Okay, so Leviticus 1, actually this was referring to um, verse 11, but we'll start from 10. The burnt offerings, first he talks about something from the herd. Uh, and then he talks about something from the flock, and then he talks about offering of birds. So these are the three different types of uh, animals, you know, that you could use for the burnt offering, which is a, a whole offering. The, the entire thing is offered up, save one part, and I'm going to mention that in a minute. Um, so the, the first time with the herd, he says that, you know, he should be uh, kill the bull before the Lord. In, in verse 10, it says, If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a man without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. And so the question was brought up, why the north side, right? Why the north side of the altar? And the thing about this that's great, and I appreciate that kind of question, is because God does not waste words. Every word in there is for a purpose. He has no throwaway lines, as it were. So everything's important. Um, we do have a we had a picture up momentarily <laughs> um, uh, about a, a picture, a drawing of the the tabernacle, the the court of the tabernacle. Um, you know where they have like a, an outer perimeter, and then you have you come in and there's an ash pit around there then you have the altar where the sacrifices are done then you have um, the the laver or the basin for the washings of the priests 
And then you have the actual tent of meeting, which is the, the tabernacle. Um, and that's broken up into two sections. You have, you know, the, uh, the holiest of holies is where the ark is, and that's where, you know, it's veiled. And no one could go in there save the high priest once a year um, to offer uh, atonement. But the picture of it, it has to be done in a particular way. And the picture pointed out that, you know, what was north, so you had your bearings of what was north and south and thereby east and west. And the people uh, who would come in, they would come in from the east. Uh, and remembering that the idea of tabernacle is God dwelling with man, and this is his dwelling place. This is the tent of meeting. This is where you meet with God. And what you have to go back to is Genesis where God sets up a temple. Then there's this garden. It's in the garden, but this is where God is dwelling with man. Um, and it's interesting, actually, and Lawrence brought it up in, in Sunday school today, is that he sets up a temple, and in temples, what do you do? You, you set up a statue, right? <laughs> and, and, an image to, uh, to watch over things. And God set his image in the garden on man. And unfortunately, we rebelled, and, and we tarnished and shattered that image and and made a, a grand mess of things and when you read that account in genesis adam and eve are expelled from the garden so that they don't take from the tree of life and there the, the bible the scripture says that they left east of the garden and then later on cain and abel they offer their offerings and cain doesn't offer an acceptable offering and he, in his anger, rises up and kills Abel. And he is judged. And he is expelled. And he leaves east of Eden. So when, when man is going out of the presence of God, they are going out. Exit east. Okay? And so here in the tabernacle, the congregation is coming in on the east entrance. They are coming back into the presence of God. And so you have that picture. And uh, the question was brought up about the north side. Well, why the north north side particularly? And if you have your Bibles, turn in Psalm to Psalm 48. And we will point out some of the imagery that God uses there. Um, just the first couple of verses. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. So when thinking about the dwelling place of God, Mount Zion in the far north. Share Can with me. One more passage. Yes, please. It's Isaiah uh, 13. And this comes from the fall of Lucifer passage. Okay. You know, how you have fallen from having no Lucifer, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he goes on, he says, For you have said in your heart, I will send into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will also sit on the mount of the assembly on the farthest sides of the north. Uh, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. Yeah, it is their understanding that the mount of God... The mounds were of assembly, you know, of the congregation, as you said, where God met, was in the farthest north reaches. And that's what Zion was in the psalm. That's, that's, that's just the understanding, that God mm -hmm. comes from the far north. God comes you know, from the far north. Or God meets us in the far north. Did you say that as Isaiah what? 
13. Oh, 14, 13. I'm looking in 13, I'm like, I don't see it. Oh, uh, did I just say 13? <laughs> yeah. I left off the 14. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. 14. Yes. So, <laughs> so that was Isaiah 14, verse 13, mm -hmm. and, and following there. And, um, right. So we have this picture that God is coming from the north. Um, now keep in mind, this whole picture is, it, it's a picture of God. It's a picture of, of creation. Um, and, and, and Lawrence was, we were talking about this earlier at church and, and he's pointing it out that, you know, the, the tabernacle, the, the holiest of holies, that's, you know, the, the, you know, the highest heavens, you know, where God is. Um, and then, so you imagine the, the clouds, you know, uh, the, the, the laver, the basin is like the, the firmament. If you, if you read your old new King James or King James version, it talks about the, you know, the firmament in the sky and that, and that separation. Um, and then you have the altar, which is the high mountain where you go up to, to meet God. And here the, the sacrifice comes down in the north, right? And so that's where God is, and the sacrifice comes from the north to be sacrificed that we could have relation. Well, who sent the sacrifice? Who's actually sending the sacrifice to earth? If the burnt offering is a symbol, a picture, a type of the final perfect sacrifice to come, the Sunday school answer is, who's that sacrifice? Jesus, right? Jesus is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and the reality is, where does he come from? The mountain of God. The mountain of God. God sends the perfect sacrifice. And even um, the Israelites, as they offer their sacrifice, keep in mind, yes, they're bringing their sacrifice, but who has given them anything to have to use as a sacrifice? Everything that we have that we offer up to God is his anyway right so it's that picture there of just the transcendence and and everything about god and creation and man in relation to it uh, pictures are everywhere steve yeah um why is it limited only to the sheep and goat sacrifices and not the bull are they all to be on the north side the bull is right at the entrance it said yeah um i think the the lamb or the goat is because that's most directly uh, picturing Christ to come. And so that's from the north, so it's, it's that clear picture. Do you have a better no, elaboration Christ is, on it? Christ is never called a bull. He's never called a bull. He's called yeah. the lamb. He's not called a turtle dove, a pigeon, you know, those kind of things. The Holy so, Spirit is. Yes, actually, that's a good point. The Holy Spirit <laughs> is, you know, comes down as Aaron a dove, bull? right? Isn't Aaron and the son the one who killed the bull? So no, no. no, the worshiper has the to. The worshiper kills the, worshiper kills the bull. It, right? The worshiper puts their hands on right. it and they kill it. Is, do you think that's a picture? Just out of curiosity, since we're going back to, you know, everything of them setting up the idol <laughs> of the bull when Moses was on the mountain. No, but I mean, it would make sense that. Uh, as that a, God didn't identify himself with right. the bull because the bull that's, was uh, always identified with the pagan. Right. That's right. what I. That's what I'm. That's my. Right. And especially if, question this was, that. if this was meant to be like pedagogical and actually to teach them. Right. You know, I mean, that he would have, you know. He doesn't take on that identity as a right. bull. I mean, the bull was this. Uh, the bull is a, a sign of strength and everything like that. But so the pagans would adopt that and use that as a, 
a sign of their gods. We have the, the bull in Smithtown. <laughs> that's kind of, so you don't see many like statues of lambs as like, ha, oh, you know, <laughs> here's our great defender. <laughs> and yet, uh, you know, if you read the Left Behind series and you talk about the wrath of the lamb and they're all mocking the idea of the wrath of a lamb. And yet the lamb who was slain is also the Lion of Judah. And beware, <laughs> um, he, he's, uh, he is not safe. But so you have this, yeah, these pictures, and so God doesn't identify Himself with the bull. You know, this. I think I'm. I think I was misunderstood. Not that God is identifying uh -huh. Himself as the bull. However, like you said. Oh, do they I use a bull? Right. Right. Yeah. So being kind of ironic, I guess is the word. Right. Or like you try to. That's a possibility. Something. That's a possibility. I'm trying to think. Because it's outside. That's why I was just wondering. It was not. That's because this is like the first well, time. It's just a question of something that popped in my head. No, but it's interesting because like you have rams and um, sheep being traditionally the symbolic animal sacrifice. So why is the bull introduced in the outside of the? Well, you have different. You also have the birds. So really, so because the bull's always um, representative of the priestly things, right? Like there's the, the four faces of the cherubim, mm -hmm. you have a man, you have an eagle, you have a bull, and you have a lion. The mm -hmm. bull represents the priestly nature of, 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 of things, you know, where the lion obviously is the kingly nature of things, mm -hmm. the, the prophetic nature of things being the eagle's nature. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, there's, 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 there's always that. Uh, the, the bull... The bull, the bull, I don't think God, does God ever identify himself as a bull? I mean, he identifies his people as a bull all the time. Yeah. <laughs> not, not a, yeah, stiff yeah. 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 Right. yeah. No, it's it's not generally. And something to be you, slaughtered. Yeah. <laughs> not, not something used in, in, a, in a positive connotation in, in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, we might have to explore that question next time, yeah, but uh, I don't want to get <laughs> more questions. That's good. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad we're thinking about it because. You want to be thinking about these questions. You want questions to pop up because if you're just reading it and, and nothing's hitting, it's just bouncing off your forehead. <laughs> you're not learning from it either. Uh, the, the best way is, is to interact with it, really think about it, chew on it, and, and, and ask those questions and, and try to find the answers. Because uh, sometimes the answers are amazing. Uh, so I, I think that you know talking about the North Side, and that does present a beautiful picture of what God is doing with us. So I, I definitely want to return to that and, and bring that up and address it. So obviously when we think of, you know, all the offerings in a sense are, are pointing to Christ. Uh, the burnt offering was the most common offering, as we talked about in terms of the five-point covenantal model. Uh, the, the five main types of sacrifices relate to that. And so, the, and as it's laid out in Leviticus, you can see it laid out in the covenantal model structure. And we discussed that already uh, last time. So the burnt offering is a picture of what? Anyone? Bueller? Transcendence, Transcendence right? Um, it's it's totally, totally consumed. And it's a picture of, you know, God is over all things. He's worthy of all things. He, We are to give him all things. And, and we're going to talk more about the implications around that. 
as we consider the book of Leviticus, as we've talked about the covenantal model, it's a book of boundaries, right? It's the laws, it's the stipulations, it's telling us how you can cross that boundary to God and how you can have relationship to God. And even as we consider the picture of the court of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, this is how when you come in from the east, right, to, to meet with God, you have to understand you're unholy, you're profane, you need a covering. And so the first thing that you're doing to come in there to even give you the ability to approach God is to have a covering. And so you need that whole burnt offering. And as you see in other parts of scripture, you'll see that they'll bring the whole burnt offering and other offerings, a sin offering, a peace offering, you know, those kind of things. Those, but you have to have that burnt offering. You have to have that covering. Um, thinking back to Genesis again, you have to keep going back to Genesis. There's so much laid out there, and it's not revealed. It's not given you every important detail and explanation of the details. But there's so much there uh, that we need to be aware of. Adam and Eve, they sinned. And what did they realize first off? They were naked. They were naked. Everyone knows that for some reason. <laughs> Everyone remembers that part. They were naked, right? And so God comes, and what does he do for them? You jumped ahead, Tom. You're so good. <laughs> he has he has to clothe them, right? And he doesn't give them jeans. <laughs> he doesn't doesn't make something out of cotton. He doesn't make something out of hemp. He doesn't make something out of linen. What does he give them? He gives them skins. What are we seeing? It's not said there, but I think it's strongly implied from the very beginning, from the very first sin. A burnt sacrifice, a burnt offering has to be given. So an, an animal has to lose its life so that they can have a cover, right? What we see here in the first chapter of Leviticus is that the animal, um, the worshiper has to skin the animal, right? And everything else is burnt on the altar. I mean, you know, all the, the excrement and stuff is, is washed away, cleansed away. Um, but the only thing that doesn't go on the altar is the skin, and it says later on in Leviticus 7-8 that the priest is the one who gets the skin. And as I'm just thinking about that as the whole offering, you have this consuming fire taking everything, and yet the skin is given over to us. And, and how do we see Christ coming? And he takes away our sin, right? He makes so that we can have relations with God, and he covers us. We wear his robe of righteousness. So now we, you know, he's identified with us. He's taken on our flesh, our skin, as it were, and taken the wrath that was deserved. Because remember, when they come to um, to worship, they put their hand, they lean on this animal, and they transfer their guilt to the animal. This animal is dying in their stead. This animal is taking the death that they deserve to die, so they they might have relationship with God. And ultimately, that's what Christ does for us. He takes our takes our skin takes our wrath and he gives us his covering he gives us his righteousness that we might be united with god questions comments preach i appreciate the heads up otherwise i was just looking at the city so the skin is not burned up the skin is not burned up. Where do all the skin the skin what happens to all the skins well, the skins are given to the priest to use you know, for whatever they they would need it for. Um, you know, they you know, they use it for clothing. They use it for you know blankets. They use it for Selling lots of things. What's that? Selling, Selling in the marketplace. I mean, keep in mind the Levites, the the priests, they weren't given 
an inheritance. God was in their inheritance, and they lived off of their service. Uh, the people provided for them through their sacrifice and, and tithes and whatnot to give them what they needed to, to live. So, so there's that. But as far as the picture goes, I, I found that fascinating. So we have Christ, who's the perfect Lamb of God, who's going to take away our sin, that we might have relationship with him. So that's the, uh, the main spiritual component that we want to see there. Uh, there you know, there's other things that we're going to talk about as we go by. Do we still offer sacrifices to God today is the question for you, just as an, yes. sort of an aside. Yes? Sacrifice of prayer and thanksgiving. Sacrifice of prayer and thanksgiving, yeah. A living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. We are a living sacrifice, right? But praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving. Yeah. So um, uh, what do we have here? I have a few verses. We have, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices uh, where'd it go? acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so that's in First Peter. Um, we have, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share with what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that's found in Hebrews 13. Um, think about Paul, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he's thanking them for their gift. And he says it's a, it's a fragrant offering, an acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God. So, I mean, there's... There's many ways to, to sacrifice to God today. You know, Christ has been that blood sacrifice, but as was brought up, our whole lives. You, you go to Romans, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, you know, keep in mind when you, what the will of God and what's good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, the, someone had mentioned to me earlier today, uh, thinking about these food offerings, and it says, you know, a, 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 what's it say? A pleasing aroma, a soothing aroma to the Lord, right? And like, but I thought he didn't have a nose. Right? I thought he didn't have nostrils. Does he? Does he smell uh, the sacrifice? And uh, the reality is, is, is when we think of that, what what is a fragrant aroma to God? They, the people of Israel would offer these sacrifices later on, and God says that they're a stench. You know, it's an abomination. Well, if they're offering the sacrifices He's called for, they weren't always. We're going to talk about some of their substitutes uh, in a little bit. But if they're offering the, the right things and they're having their holy convocations and they're having their festivals and he says, I'm weary of them, you know, basically like you're all just making me sick. Why? Because they're offering praise and, and uh, honor with their lips. But he says, your hearts are far from me. So like they're doing all the church things, right? They're showing up for church. They're, they're taking part in the sacrifices, but their life is not consistent with what their profession of faith is. God did not tell them just to offer sacrifice. He tells them how to live their lives, how to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, how to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to see some of those laws in here. And I, I mentioned in the first session, to love your neighbor as yourself is not a New Testament commandment. <laughs> that was found in Leviticus. He was quoting Leviticus when he said it. How they're supposed to be treating their neighbors, how they're supposed to be treating 
you know, the foreigner, the sojourner, the immigrant who's coming through, uh, the orphan, the widow, how are they doing these things? Um, that's what's pleasing to God. But the idea of these sacrifices being pleasing is because they're a sign of obedience, they're a sign of faith, that, you know, trusting God that this is what you're telling us we need to do, and we believe you, and we believe it's it's right and important to, to have fellowship with you. And so, he's moved. Um, and so, they uh, they come and they come and bring these sacrifices, and it is a uh, a soothing, uh, pleasing aroma to God. So, so sacrifice is still called upon us today. And in fact, this whole thing is not well. Well, Jesus came, so we don't offer sacrifices anymore. And Jesus came, so we don't have to worry about the Book of Leviticus anymore. Um, Gary North is going to. Uh, tease out some principles and concepts that need to be uh, remembered uh, and it's incredibly relevant for today and um, so there is a, a spiritual component to it um, but as far as practicality and, and living our lives and and being a nation before God and having an economy before God economy um, economics is not neutral it's not it's not a morally neutral thing we have to recognize God's sovereignty over it and his principles for it. And otherwise, we, we should not expect God to bless us. So before I jump into that part, even as time runs away, oh, we're pretty good. we got time to, to get into this. Any questions or comments about what we have already discussed? Nope. It's that clear to everyone? Very good. Some of the stuff is pretty basic. I hope maybe there was a new tidbit or something in there for you that was uh, was uh, new. But in his first kind of chapter or chapter about um, talking about the chapter one, uh, he starts off titling it Sacrifice, Stewardship, and Debt. And so to give you an idea of some of the things we're going to be talking about. And so he says, you know, for letter A, uh, the law of sacrifices. James Jordan, Jim Jordan, <laughs> says that the whole burnt sacrifice symbolized the death of the sacrificer. The death was imputed judicially to the animal. Now that part we're pretty clear on. We know. Um, another thing to remember was that it had to be unblemished. As a representative, it could not have the taint of sin. Um, you know, because this is a picture, right? Um, and so... In the fall, what do we have? We have blemishes, we have scars, we have damage, we have less than perfect animals. <laughs> Thank you to Bailey for being an object lesson for us. <laughs> so we have these less than perfect animals, right? Um, and these are signs of the fall. And so we are fallen, we have all sorts of things wrong with us. Um, and so we deserve to be destroyed and that bears out. So if we're going to have something stand in our place to take our guilt, they can't have their own guilt or a picture of guilt um, because then, you know, they're just dying for their own sins. So this animal is supposed to be unblemished. So it's a picture of, you know, the, the perfection and getting um, the punishment that we deserve and not their own punishment. So additionally, it must be costly. Atonement could not be obtained at a discount. Right. Um, we do see God in his mercy, the idea of the turtle doves and the pigeons. If you were really poor, God still made a way for you to 
to come and to meet him and to uh, be able to offer a sacrifice. But even that, I mean, these were more, you know, plentiful birds and, and, and you know, could be domesticated. And we see, you know, they would be sold and stuff. And they wouldn't be sold for much. You know, a, you know, a sparrow goes for a penny or something. Uh, and he goes, aren't you worth many sparrows? And God knows, you know, he knows when each one falls, right? And aren't, aren't you worth many sparrows? But if they're worth a penny, but we think of the widow who put her might in the uh, the offering and half a penny, right? And he says, she gave everything she has to live on. So, you know, the idea of, of someone even bringing those turtle doves and not purchasing something else, um, it's just showing that he's making a way for them to show atonement, but it, it's still... Um, it's still at a cost. Uh, Blemish-free, uh, another part of that is, uh, this is uh, B, if you're following along. Uh, God deserves the best that we have to offer. So blemish-free male represents our total indent. This is interesting, um, if you haven't thought it through. A blemish-free male was the most expensive type of animal, um, but it, it represents our total indebtedness to God. We have to give him the very best that we have. Um, and on the other hand, God limits the sacrifice. It's only one animal. You know, you don't have to give every animal that you have. Um, we don't burn all we own in a hopeless quest to, to placate God and to hope that we can somehow pay off our debt, um, uh, you know, with some sort of act of, of personal sacrifice, like, you know, as much as we can. Our indebtedness deems that's insufficient. If we gave everything we have, it still wouldn't be enough to, to pay our way. Um, he mentions that there's a ditch of autonomy on both sides of the road. A blemished male, if you try to give a blemished male to God, you're, you're denying your depravity and, and God's sovereignty to do what he requires. Like, well, it's not that bad. You know, I can just give you this. On the other hand, if you offer more than what God requires, um, it's, a, it's a way that man can think that he can pay his own way for sin. And so you're kind of telling God, like, don't worry, I've got this. I can earn it on my own. And so that's that's unacceptable as well. Um, substitute sacrifices. And this was something that was a – we see a problem, right? We, we see the prophet saying, you're bringing me these blind animals, these damaged animals. Like, would you give that to your governor? You know, if you're handing it to him, like, as an offering, like, here, here's something to eat. Like, really? <laughs> who, who do you think I am? Who do you think you are giving me this? When God specifies something that he requires, man does not have the right to make a substitution. Uh, to not offer blood where blood is required, to offer something that's blemished and less valuable, is again to assert man's sovereignty over God. It's, it's outrageous to tell God that what we will give him, when that's in contradiction to what he has clearly spelled out that he requires. Think about that for a second. And that's, that's what changes. What? That's what Cain did. Um, I mean, it says he offered some fruit, or whatever, and we see that, you know, Abel offers a um, a burnt offering, and, and and basically, you know, from his, you know, from his uh, his flocks to the best that he had. So he gives his best. Cain just gives some. There's some questions like, well, did if Cain had given the best of his crops, would that have been accepted? I tend to think not. There's some room for disagreement on that. Um, but we see early on, even from Adam and Eve, there's a there's a blood sacrifice required. You know that the skins and the need for the covering, uh, these are all pictures of, of man's situation and his sin. So think about that idea. God says, "This is what I expect from you." You know, 
to come and to have fellowship with me. It has to be a perfect male, you know, unblemished, and you have to offer the whole thing up as a as an offering, a burnt offering, all up in smoke, and you get none of it, right? And these people say, yeah, I know he said that, <laughs> but this is what I'm going to bring. Like, can you imagine just like, that seems outrageous, right? Does that seem just like, like wild, like wildly arrogant towards God Does to bring... Do the same thing today? Don't jump ahead. <laughs> this was all the Nathan, like, this guy stole the little lamb. <laughs> he goes, he deserves to die. You're the man, right? Uh, how often do we do the same thing? God tells us clearly in his word what he expects from us, and we don't do it. We give him less. I love my neighbor, except for that guy. He's a jerk, right? I'm not, I'm not going to love him. I would honor my parents, but have you met them? No, I'm not going to honor my parents. I'm watching to see if any of the girls are laughing. <laughs> no, we love to honor our parents. Um, no, it, how many things does God require of us? And we decide, I'm just not gonna, I'm just not gonna give that. Um, no. And so we have to realize that much like the ancient Israelites, we, we fall into the same, the same trap. Any questions or comments about that? No? We good so far? Anyone need coffee? We still have time. So, all right. Uh, D, public sacrifice and implicit stewardship. Thinking about being, these things in, in terms of the covenant, um, you know, Gary North, he says, yeah, a covenant-keeping man, he would offer the best of his flock as a token of God's absolute ownership of him and his flock. So, at the same time, he retained lawful title in God's court to everything that remained in his possession. And, and this is when we start talking about practical things and how we look at what we have and the resources that we have in light of our relationship to God in light of our relationship to the economy and how things work or how things ought to work, right? Um, his life and possessions were no longer tainted. When he has this debt against God, it's basically like, you know, uh, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, right? I mean, we have to recognize that before God, we are spiritually bankrupt. You know, we owe him everything. When you're bankrupt, they come for everything. They're, they're seizing all your assets. You owe a debt that you can't pay, so we take everything from you and try to give it to your creditors to placate them somewhat. But you're still done. You're you're out of the picture. And so we're going to talk about that uh, even in a minute uh, about the idea of bankruptcy. But you have this debt, and God in His mercy has provided a sacrifice for you, a covering for you, and He says, "You give this to me, and I will let you keep the rest." Just keep in mind, the sacrifices that we bring are all his anyway. <laughs> you know, if, if you heard that the, that old joke I shared a couple of weeks ago about, like, man deciding he doesn't need God anymore. They're scientists, and we can do everything you can do, and we don't need your supernatural help anymore. He goes, all right, we'll make a man like I did. And they're like, oh, we can do that. He goes, no, like I did. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And they start scooping up the dirt, right? We're going to make a man out of the dirt. And he goes, what are you doing? Like, we're going to make a man out of the dirt like you did. He goes, get your own dirt. Like, he spoke that dirt into existence. That's his dirt. You're going to have to make your own dirt out of nothing and then make a man. So the idea that everything we give to God is, is only what he has caused us to have in the first place. So he allows us to give a sacrifice, and now 
the, the, the sacrifice or his life and his possessions are no longer tainted. His representative sacrificial act removed God's curse um, in history. So by sacrificing the best of his flock, he's reestablished the claim of leg legitimate ownership over, over the property that, that he has. So in God's court, he can, he can carry on as a steward, right? And says here, what? because he personally bore the economic loss, he established lawful title to future benefits from his property. Only someone who has the legal authority to disown a piece of property can accurately be said to own it. So this is why like the sacrifice has to be that person's, the, the worshiper, the sacrificer. They have to own it. They can't steal it, you know, can't steal it from someone else. They can't get it as a gift from someone else. It has to be um, yours. And when you're when he's giving that sacrifice, he's acknowledging publicly in principle that he does owe God everything and whatever he has retained, he retains by God's grace as a steward. Um, so here we have his sins are covered in God's court and his remaining property is now still under his lawful control. And um, as we mentioned before, he says, you know, if he had sacrificed a low value animal, he has been symbolically asserting before God um, that God only had lawful title to the dregs of his assets, the leftovers. I mean, think about that when you hear later on about the gleaning laws, right? Um, if you had a piece of field, recognizing that God gives the growth, you know, God gives you um, the, the fruitful bounty of your harvest. And God says, but leave, you know, when you're, when you're gathering in the, the crop, he goes, leave the, the edges and the sides for gleaning. Don't pick up every last grain every last you know um uh, piece of vegetation you know wheat and corn whatever it is just leave it for the poor to come and to be able to glean through they get you know they're poor they're they're in debt they they need whatever they can get he goes but if you give something less than the best of god you're basically saying yeah you can just have you can have a little something for me I, like you kind of like like he's your charity case right and, and that's not the way it works and this was this would have been rebellion on the part of the sacrificer to do less. And it's theft of God's property because everything you have is because God gave it to you, right? I mean, we give our tithes and offerings and how do we pray over it? Lord, we're giving back to you just a small portion of what you've blessed us with. The fact that we can work and we can provide and we can have sustenance is because you have enabled us to. And so we are saying he's first in, in that. In, in our economy, our own personal economy, our, our income and, and how we deal with it, right? Um, and he mentions here about the idea of stewardship, you know, that we're, we're talking about. And he says it's an inescapable concept. It's not a question of stewardship or no stewardship. It's always a stewardship to whom, right? Um, as a famous theologian, Bob Dylan, once said, <laughs> you got to serve somebody, right? You, you know, you're serving someone. You're, it, it's not... You're, no one's autonomous as, as much as we want to uh, think so. And Jesus says, um, no one can serve two masters. But the idea is you will be serving someone, right? But you'll either hate one and love the other or hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And if you're going to serve God, you're going to give him everything. You're going to be willing, willing to give him everything and give what he requires. If you want to serve mammon, you're going to keep the better stuff for yourself and just throw him a little something to the side. Uh, so we cannot serve no master either. That never works. When we try to serve no master, um, we find the state <laughs> taking over. And we'll get into that in a minute. 
Um, so we have to serve we have to serve someone or something, which is point two of the biblical covenant. There's always a hierarchy. We're, we're, we're not it. <laughs> There's always someone over us, right? Uh, when we identify the sovereign agent for which men work as economic stewards, he says we have identified the God of that particular society. Okay, so this is where we start getting into some of the nitty gritty. Um, and I, I just want you to be thinking about this because, again, what Gary North had said as his introduction, he goes, I'm writing for an audience that doesn't exist yet, right? He, he's writing for people who are going to understand that God has something to say about the economy. Uh, and he wants them to know how to order society in a manner that's pleasing to God. Uh, but in order for that to happen, it's not just something like, you know, someone's going to flip a switch and everything's going to be right, right? And everyone's going to say, okay, let's do this. No, you have to... <laughs> I don't know if it's a good well thinking of examples, but how do we see revival come to a, a nation? You know, um, things that happened in in the uh, before the American uh, War for Independence, right? They called it the, the Presbyterian Revolt, right? These Presbyterian preachers were preaching liberty in Christ. <laughs> They're preaching the, the principles of of life according to the gospel. And then saying, and this ain't it, right? And so there was a change, and, and but it came about through preaching. When we hear about revivals and awakenings, it comes by the faithful men preaching the truth, um, and often when it's not popular. Because if it's a revival, that means there was something that needed reviving. If it's awakening, that means that there were people who were sleeping. And usually these guys are not popular at first. You know, they're persecuted, they're chased you know, they're, you know, people are out to get them. But when they're proclaiming that truth and God and his spirit helps people to have eyes to see and ears to hear and they capture the vision of what's going on, then they recognize something has to change. Something has to give. And so that's how we see change affected. So when I'm talking about something so in some people's minds as tedious as the economy <laughs> what, what do we know about the economy how's that going to affect us well, by passing along that information to other people by sharing it by getting people to have an understanding especially in a world in a society in a in a nation where they're saying just keep giving us your money and we'll solve all the world's ills haven't we been doing such a great job so far <laughs> right no they haven't i hope <laughs> i think we're all aware of that so so Pay attention to that line. When we identify the sovereign agent for which men work as economic stewards, we have identified the God of that particular society. You know, he talks about, about the mid-18th century and, and the time of the Enlightenment. And he goes, on the right side of that, the right wing, they proclaim the free market as the institutional master. Um, you know, so we talk about that, about, you know, the, the customer's authority nowadays. Um, uh, on the left side, on the left wing... Of course, they viewed the state, you know, the state as the institutional man, uh, master. In each case, the Enlightenment was proclaiming autonomous man as the judicial sovereign, right, the ultimate owner. The question then became, which institution, which institution best represents this new sovereign, the free market or the state? Anyone want to give that a guess? Free market. Anyone else? <laughs> that's what we would think, right? Because that's what we're being... On the right side, the right side, 
not necessarily the correct side, but the right side, right, the conservative side, they would say, yes, the free market, give it, give it to the people. Uh, and on the left side, we would say the state. But the reality is God is the master of that. And um, we don't just leave it to man to determine those things because you hear people bemoaning capitalism today um, and they're saying, well, that's a wicked thing. And so we need socialism. We need communism. These are actually better for the people. But more often, and then we can talk about <laughs> um, a lot of times we're talking about crony capitalism, the, the, the corruption of it. Uh, when you have you have market laws that are able to be manipulated and corrupted and, you know, the power struggle and, and being able to manipulate the markets. I mean, that's why God says he hates things like um, unjust weights and measures, right? You know, these, these false standards. This is an abomination in God's sight, but we need to make careful that we're not seeing it done in the marketplace and not being responded to it. The state is a necessary thing. Um, Doug Wilson actually shared something I shared on Facebook, um, 21 uh, principles, I think, about the civil magistrate. And one of the things he starts off saying is, like, the, the civil magistrate is a blessing. It, it's a good thing. It, it's a gift from God. Um, like any good gift from God, it can be corrupted and, and um, perverted, and that needs to be dealt with. But it is actually a good thing. Um, but we don't leave it to man, either in the, in the place of the market or the place of the state, to decide how things ought to be um you know most of the time that we see how these things move on those two things are it's, it's their rival humanist viewpoints um they have not gone to the bible in search of another approach and he goes this is why in his case my economic commentary represents a radical break with the past um isn't a free market i always thought of it as as um there's uh, obviously there's there's corrupt there's um, potential for corruption, but the idea of the free market where each individual is motivated by profit. Mm -hmm. to, to, well, to, let me, right, the motivation. Let me stop profit. it right there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what is it then? If it's not the state, what is it? A third? What is it? It, it, you're about to introduce that. Right? Well, it's it's God's law. It's it's God's standard. Um, it's the fact that it, we're not just about profit. I mean, profit is important. From profit is what makes people do trade and business, and it does bring human flourishing. It, it's a profit is not a, a bad thing in and of itself. God does not expect us not to make profit on things. That's people's income. Um, but at what at what price? At what expense? And when we're doing these things, are we acknowledging God's sovereignty over our over our resources, the things that we're stewards over, that the way that we're conducting our business? Are we looking to God or are we just looking to man and saying, well, man on his own, given the right set of circumstances, he'll be fine. I mean, that's what the idea of the Enlightenment was. If you educate, you know, we don't need God. If you, if you just educate, the idea of secular humanism is man, if he's taught properly, will be good. What was the original question you asked? I think I might have missed what this What was the, um, which institution best represents the new sovereign, the free market or the state? And so we're talking about what so is... you gave us two wrong answers to choose from. I that. did. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what society is looking at. That's, that's 
their rival humanist perspectives. So it, it's I, I'm not I'm not meaning to give you. I, sorry, it was a trick question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I repent. All right. Um, that was the question that he's posing is for mankind as they as they look at things. Who's the best one to handle things? Because we would say yes uh, um, from a purely humanistic perspective, but we're we're so immersed in that. And you know, and when we hear uh, TV and, and the radio and, and and media talking about what's the world. the world and what's going on, what's the best way to handle things? So we do we let the market just do what it's going to do, or do we let the state? control things because we see the market and we see corruption in it so we need the state to take over but if we look to the state to do everything then they become corrupt and so we have two corrupt things battling it out uh, and the problem is the state always wins because the state carries a sword you know and so when they decide things are they've had enough they take their ball and go home but we're the ball <laughs> you know, so it's a mess question comment unless the market starts what? Unless the market starves the state. Yeah, I don't have a certain game. Well, that's something that happens too, but then somehow the state always manages to. Well, it doesn't happen. That's kind of the problem. That's what the theory is. No, 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 you have the places where. If, oh. Elaborate. Um, well, you know that Sun King, right? Louis, the whatever, 14th? Uh huh. 16th, whichever it is. 16th, yeah, the Sun King. He's trying to raise war. Raise. raise Peoples to go to war with England. Uh -huh. They were always at war with England. Right. And we couldn't. Mm -hmm. we couldn't get the funds and we couldn't get the people. Mm -hmm. And they're like, nah. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, yeah sure. They okay. do have they do have the power of the sword. But they no, need but the sword. They, they do they that the state really produces. Nothing. Nothing. No. Yeah. True words were never spoken. The state produces nothing. Right. Right. So yeah, it has happened historically. Say that again. No, it has happened historically. That yeah. No, it is. It is possible. The the problem is in our humanist perspective, like people like, but we need the state, you know, and so they won't start the state because what about our roads? What? Unless you're libertarian, <laughs> you're in those the trenches in the minority. Like we need to, we need to do something here. So I mean, yes, it goes back and forth. But at, look at us now. Um, we're a society that believes like everything's litigation. We we gotta sue everyone. If uh, if someone if you know there's an accidental shooting, we need to take the guns away from everyone because it's for the children, right? Um, someone's got a cold, everyone needs a vaccine. Because don't you care about me? Don't you love your neighbor? It gets – we look to the state to control those things um, because we don't have a biblical perspective. We don't have an eternal perspective. And so we look to one God or the other like, please save us. <laughs> oh, bail. <laughs> you know, and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. I'm still confused though with like the theonic like, constructs. Like I, I understand the idea of like having the – responsibilities between church and state separate but simultaneously it's just like how can they actually be separate entities if that is a long conversation yeah. <laughs> um we will have it and i'll i'll close this out so we can have it because we're actually about the, at the 50 minute mark so uh, i'm already a little bit 
a little bit over and the next section is a longer section so just as we go through the study I just want us thinking about some of these concepts and some of these principles that we generally don't think about when you know when someone says Leviticus the first thing that you think of is not the economy <laughs> it's often not even the last thing you think of <laughs> with a long list of things in between <laughs> most people are never going to get to the economy um, but it's there and 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 our understanding of uh, because the economy the economy has to do with stewardship we have resources how are we handling them what are we doing with them how do we view our responsibility to manage them and there are principles right here in Leviticus that are going to discuss some of those things so did you have a comment or a question okay um, he says if and you know we end up seeing the state take more control of this um, because the state's the one that actually generally carries more power I mean yes the market does have power and, and it can I mean look how many times um, I remember when Clinton was in office or whatever and um, you know they're talking about like re-electing him or not and you know people were like because he was doing some messed up stuff and people weren't necessarily happy about it but you know what I heard <laughs> my 401k has never been better you know and so the market help to decide who stayed in power or didn't you know if the economy is doing bad they'll look to get those people out you know if the economy is doing bad I mean you, you, you think about uh let them eat cake oh really people are starving and so yes that's a lot more involved than that but I mean what yeah. all right propaganda, propaganda. but <laughs> the point remains if people are furious over their financial state you know the state of the economy people how many people do you know vote with their pocketbooks right um, and that will lead people to overthrow right so we'll see things about the market affecting things about those who are uh, you know in the power of the state but a lot of times and here we're seeing that the state has a tremendous amount of power and if the state is not restrained uh, by a theology of God's primary sovereignty it will threaten man with servitude in history. Um, what man grants to the state theologically, he will pay for economically. If we think that the state is sovereign and we have to submit under all circumstances as if the state is God, right? Um, then we'll do whatever the state says. You want my income tax? Okay. You're gonna take it right out of my check before I see it? <laughs> okay. You want property taxes too. Like I have to like pay the mortgage I own the house and then I still have to rent the land that I'm on okay you know I have to wear a mask when I'm by myself <laughs> in the open air okay like you're you're a slave you you do as you're told and you'll like it right um, and you think about our economy today you think about the, the tax rates right um, and here you know we have people arguing about like well if you you make more than 400,000 we're, we're raising your taxes most people are like yes yeah, so <laughs> I don't know anyone who's making 400,000 or more a year <laughs> but what is <laughs> talking about the different tax rates depending on your your income status what does Samuel tell the people when they ask for a king when they want to be like the other nations he says he's gonna take 10% they already owed God 10% and that wasn't changing well now you owe the state 10% and it's gonna be slavery to you he tells them all things that the king is gonna do 
and including the 10% income tax. And he says, it'll be slavery to you. And they're like, we want the king. <laughs> Who'd love to go back to 10% income tax right now? But 10% like flat, flat rate? <laughs> Sign me up. You know, it's, it's slavery because slavery is you're not in control of your production. You have to give it to, you have to give it to the master. You can go out there and, you know, harvest the field and get the crops in and, and do work and, and this and that. And who's getting the money? Well, the master's getting the money. So he gives you food and clothing. He puts a roof over your head. So, I mean, so here the state, well, they don't put you on the plantation. And, and, but you have enough money probably <laughs> to buy your food and clothing, have a roof over your head, and get an iPhone, and do whatever, whatever little things make you happy. But they get... They always get their cut. And if they don't get their cut, they'll throw you in jail. That's not freedom. That's that's slavery. Taxation. <laughs> to a degree. We're going to move on here. <laughs> look at the time. Look at, look at it go. <laughs> um, so just to wrap up this section, the whole burnt offering symbolized God's primary ownership and man's stewardship under God. Whatever man owns has been granted to him by God. Whenever the doctrine of sovereignty is transferred from God to the state, so is the concept of primary ownership. If the state is God, then the state takes ownership of everything. Um, and we follow that. I gotta go home. All right, brother. Take care. Okay. Glad you're able to make it out with us. I'm glad to be here. All Thanks right. Very much, guys. Take care. Have a good night, Tom. Good night, Tom. Good night. So, the state is regarded as the absolute owner. Individuals are stewards of the state. They only own what the state allows them to own. They only keep what they're, you know, I mean, you've heard about laws against harvesting rainwater. <laughs> you can't have the water that came from the sky from God belongs to the government, right? Um, but say again with me, I am free. <laughs> I am free. Um, uh, so he goes, oh, he goes, a successful defense of freedom must begin with the doctrine of God's sovereignty and permanent restraints on those covenantal agencies that represent God in history. Uh, the permanent economic limit on the church is a tithe, 10% of a person's net output, net income. Uh, the permanent economic restraint on a civil government is also the tithe. All combined levels of the state may not lawfully claim so much as a tithe. So they can't have more. That's it. That's the limit. Um, and so I'll read this last part because he says it really well. Uh, whenever men deny God's absolute sovereignty, they also deny his right to place economic and judicial limits on those institutions that represent him judicially. Remember, the government, the civil magistrate, does represent God. And Romans 13, he is his servant, right? He's there to punish evil. He's there on, on God's behalf. But they have limits, and so whenever they, whenever man denies God's sovereignty, they deny his right to place those limits. This inevitably leads to an attempt by man to transfer final sovereignty in history from God to some human agency, usually the state. The state then seeks to place boundaries around God's revealed world. Turn from Leviticus, the book of boundaries, right? Um, the state then places boundaries around God's revealed word, the Bible. Think about North Korea. You can get the death penalty for having pornography in Korea, but you also get the death penalty if you have a Bible in North Korea, all right? Um, they're putting boundaries around God's word. 
when God puts the boundaries around their institution. So the alternative is to admit that God's revealed word has placed boundaries around the state. Boundaries are an inescapable concept. The question is who creates them, who lawfully announces them, what are they, how are they enforced, how are they modified over time. The one who successfully commands sacrifice is the God of the society, the lawgiver. I hope that's piqued your interest. <laughs> I know it's late. I know we're talking about like the economy, but this is serious. I mean, God is saying, mine. <laughs> I'm the one who sets the limits. I'm the one who sets the boundaries. I tell you what the economy should look like. And when you don't do that, it becomes a mess. And we're living in it. We're in a society that's ready to crumble. You know, we have foreign nations that own us through debt. Uh, you know, the state, we have given over all power. All, we don't want the responsibility of liberty. And so we become their slaves. And so this is important. So tell your friends, God bless you. Thank you. She's allergic to tyranny. Especially after watching the debate. Right. So that closes out that section. And so I know, you know, these are practical things, but it's something that we need to be aware of. Um, who said it? The definition of a good citizen. Eugene Rosenstein, Houston. Wow. That's good. What? The guy. <laughs> That's his name? Yeah. Say it again one more time. Eugene Rosenstein, Cusey. Right. So the definition, of a, <laughs> the definition of a good citizen is one who's able to rebuild the society, who knows what's expected of them. God tells us what's expected. Right. So... All right, we'll close it out here. We'll close in prayer, and then we can have all sorts of wonderful discussions until 9 o'clock. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the, the teachers that you have gifted and equipped to, um, to edify the body and to help us to think practically about these things. We appreciate, Lord, those commentaries that point to um, just the, the transcendence and, and, and pointing to the necessity of Christ and how he is our covering that we might have a relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for, for men like Gary North and talking about how um, your word has something to say about the economy and, and every area of life. We, Father, we pray that your church would understand these essential truths and Lord, that they would, they would grow in their understanding of them and that we would see one day these things put into practice as they ought to be. That we might once again experience your blessings as a nation. So we thank you again for this time. I thank you for those who could be with us. I pray that you would uh, be with them as they go out. That we would honor and glorify you um, in the week to come. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the Reformed Rookie Podcast where we aim to teach Reformed theology to beginners or rookies. Be sure to look us up on the web at www.reformedrookie.com, where you will find many more learning tools and aids to help you grow in your understanding of all things Reformed. And remember, Semper Reformanda. Dr. Luther, are you prepared to retract these writings? In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Will you recant, or will you not? Here it is. I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, and I will not.
Godfrey Kent. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen.